to Water Talk from the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm Dr. Molly Kanoko, a Cooperative Extension Specialist in Soil Plant Water Relations and Irrigation Management. I am Sam Sandoval. I'm a faculty and an Extension Specialist in Water Resources. And I'm Faith Kearns, the Academic Coordinator for the California Institute for Water Resources. All right, well, let's get started then. I would love it if the two of you, Dan and Leslie, could provide a short introduction of who you are and, and what you do. I will defer to you, Leslie. Who are you? <laughs> okay, who am I? Uh, sure, so my name is Leslie Roach, and I am a UC Cooperative Extension Specialist in Rangeland Science and Management with the UC Davis Department of Plant Sciences. And basically my uh, research and extension program is at the intersection of agricultural, environmental, and social aspects of ranching and livestock production on California's rangelands and pastures. I am Dan Macon. I am a Livestock and Natural Resources Advisor for four counties in the foothills in Sacramento Valley. I cover Placer, Nevada, Sutter, and Yuba counties. And uh, in a weak moment, also became the co-county director for Placer and Nevada counties as well. So I've got some administrative responsibilities. I'm also a sheep producer. Um, we have a small-scale commercial sheep operation just outside of Auburn. Um, so we're, like a lot of bald guys, wear several different hats, and, and <laughs> sheep is one of them. Wonderful. So do you refer to yourself as a shepherd then? Is that... Is that something that still exists or is that the right terminology? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, in, in the West, most of us are referred to as sheep herders, um, but I like shepherd better. And, and uh, certainly that I'm, I, I'm a shepherd by avocation and a, a farm advisor as well. So it's, it's nice to be both. Thank you so much for joining us. Just to get started. So a little bit about me. I... I I'm a transplant to California from the Midwest. I thought of ranching as a very specific activity involving livestock. I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a ranching operation in California is. Sure, um, so I guess I'll start. So there is quite a bit of diversity of how individual ranching operations are structured. And that's partially because the California landscape itself is, is so diverse. It's incredibly biologically diverse and over space and time. And um, so we, you know, we have a lot of these are, uh, most of these are um, family uh, based operations. Um, you know, they're third generation or more in ranching and typically, uh, you know, median in terms of cow-calf, a lot of what I, what I do is coming from the cow-calf perspective which is a, a typical um, operation structure for California. Dan, of course, can comment on the sheep and even goat operations. I would just add that, uh, you know, since I am a livestock producer as well as, mm -hmm. as a, an extension guy, um, for all of my friends that call their operations ranches but don't have livestock, I have to tell them they're wrong. Those are the <laughs> they're okay, okay. <laughs> and I, you know, just to, to build a little bit on what Leslie said, I think one of the unique aspects of the, of the sheep and goat um, business here in California is that small ruminants can really take advantage of a, a wide variety of, of forage resources. And 
but we see a lot of sheep and goat producers that take advantage of crop residues and alfalfa stubble and grain stubble and, and things like that um, because we can put them in places that maybe it takes more infrastructure to run cattle. And I think that's a, a real unique aspect of the sheep and goat business here in, in California. How are all of the ways in which ranchers use water? Yeah, so, so for, for typical cow-calf operations in California, um, you know, they have to 365 days a year support cows and, and produce an annual, cow, cow, uh, annual calf crop. And so we think of this as kind of like the annual forage clock of supply and demand. It's kind of how I think of things in terms of, you know, there's the demand of the animal and then the, then the supply of, of the forage. And so typically, you know, you start in, in the fall, um, you know, during the on dry annual range with calving. And um, so animals are grazing that dry residual forage from the previous growing season. And they're just now coming into germination of, of new green grass with those first fall rains. Um, then as we move into, you know, winter and spring, when we receive most of our precipitation, because, you know, this is, this is predominantly rain-fed agriculture, you know, we get some forage growth. It's, it's slow at first and then increasing pretty rapidly into the spring. And then as we move into summer, we enter, you know, this, this dry dormant period for most of the valleys and foothill regions. Um, and the forage senesces, and we start seeing those, you know, characteristically golden hills that California is so well known for. And this is when we see a lot of cattle moving to, you know, literally greener pastures, um, including <laughs> ir irrigated pasture lands and, and mountain meadows. And um, so, you know, as we complete the, you know, the, the annual forage clock by end of summer, you know, that, that annual um, calf crop is sold or it's moved to other parts of the, of the operation, depending on the structure of the operation. And, and then those cows are moved back to, um, to dry land range. Another way water is used in these operations is as a management tool. Um, you know, you use that to target cattle in certain areas for conservation or restoration goals, you know, things like protecting sensitive habitats or controlling invasive weeds or reducing fine uh, find fuels using water and, and other distribution to tools in that manner. And Dan can definitely talk more about that as it relates to, you know, the, the sheep and goat operations in the state. Yeah. So I, you know, to drill down a little deeper into the, the small ruminant end of things, um, one of the advantages that we often have with small ruminants, sheep and goats, is that we can move water to them um, rather than having to supply water on the landscape. And um, that gives us a lot of flexibility towards targeting our grazing to meet particular vegetation management goals. There's a real increase right now in using sheep and goats to reduce fuel loading and, and fire danger, for example. And, and certainly that has an impact on, on watershed um, health and, and quality as well. Um, here in the foothills, much of our water system is a remnant of the gold mining era. And so um, we actually irrigate the pastures that we summer our sheep on out of a canal that was, was actually hand dug or, or horse dug during the gold rush area and still delivers water out of the Yuba watershed into, into Placer County here. Fairly typical in the northern foothills. Um, we still have a lot of the remnants of that system that was originally developed to 
to hydraulically mine um, and then was over the course of years changed into an irrigation system that that irrigated crops and pastures. I think the other the other issue that we see here in, in the foothills is that unless we can put water out on our pastures using gravity, we probably can't afford to irrigate pasture. If we've got a pump, we've got to be growing something that's higher value and more intensively managed than irrigated pasture. So as a follow-up question, this is Faith. I, um, I mentioned in our first, our intro episode that, you know, I often look to you uh, for sort of these early indicators of what's happening drought-wise in the state because um, especially, you know, early on during the, the 2012 to 2016-ish drought that we had, Dan, the, the, the way that I first encountered you was, you know, your blog post about the emotional toll of drought. You've continued for many years to kind of write about what it's like to experience any given precipitation here and yeah. the kind of anxieties that you go through around it. And so I'm wondering if you could just kind of outline why it is that ranchers tend to sort of feel those early indicators of drought and kind of what some of the short-term impacts of drought, the near-term impacts of drought are on the ranching community? Yeah, you know, Leslie kind of outlined the, the typical forage calendar, um, which is, is a good place to start, I think. Because we operate on, on these rain-fed systems and we're in a Mediterranean climate, we kind of look to that. Actually, I think that we should make Germination Day a national holiday in, on rangeland. Um, but we look for that first three quarters to an inch of rain in the fall that's going to get the grass started and, and kind of relieve that dry spell and, and the fire danger that goes with it in the fall. Um, but then we also need kind of continued rain through what is typically our rainy season. And that, I think in my lifetime, certainly seen a shift in, in when we can expect rain in the wintertime. It, it seems like we've changed when we can expect wetter months versus drier months to some extent. So I think, you know, I think that has a huge impact on the amount of grass that we have available to us. In our particular operation, we time our lambing to coincide with the onset of rapid grass growth. Our sheep will eat almost twice as much grass when they're nursing a lamb as they will when they're not lactating. And so we really want to time our whole production system around that rapid grass growth that, that typically starts in late February here. Um, in 2013, as you'll recall, we went through a, a period um, with no rain at all leading up to that time when we were going to lamb. And so that, that certainly induced a lot of anxiety for us. Having ranched through that millennial drought, I find that I am much, I have a lot more anxiety when it quits raining in the rainy season than I did then. And so these last several years, you know, we've had a fairly good dry stretch during the course of our rainy season that all of us get a little nervous about. And I, I think th that would not have been my approach or my feeling prior to the 2012 to 2015 drought. You're, you're speaking to kind of what you can learn over time. And Leslie has done, and, and your group has done some interesting work on kind of the difference between ranchers that come from multi-generational ranching families where there is knowledge passed on versus first-generation ranchers. And so Leslie, um, for example, you know, at, 
as you both noted, a lot of the first generation ranchers are kind of raising sheep and goats and they're doing things like thinking about using grazing practices to reduce fire risk. So can you talk a little bit about what you're finding in that research about how first generation ranchers are coping with drought and climate change? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this was this was a question we had several years ago. Um, actually, this was in collaboration with a former graduate student, Kate London Dixon, who was really interested in kind of, you know, these these new folks that were, you know, working on these rangelands. And some of our preliminary work, we actually pulled from some cross-state survey work that our group did, you know, almost 10 years ago now. And there were actually quite a few first-generation ranchers that we had surveyed then. And and some of the results that we had were suggesting that, you know, the first generation uh, folks compared to their multi-generational counterparts, you know, they had more uh, limited networks, so more limited social information networks related to agricultural and natural resources management. They had less access to resources and fewer adaptation strategies available to them, or at least the ones that were typical or traditionally used by those larger multi-generational operations. And, you know, so this potentially was pointing to that they were, you know, more vulnerable to climate and environmental change. And so we, you know, this was, this was a very concerning finding that we had. And so Kate, actually, she led some, um, you know, more recent interviews with what we call, you know, new early career first generation ranchers. So we can kind of dig in more. And what she's finding is that, you know, they, um, they may not be using some of the traditional drought management practices that we're familiar with and Extension works with folks on. Um, and, but what they are doing is they are trying to experiment with different ways of doing things because they really are starting from scratch. Um, some of those traditional drought management practices, such as like setting conservative stocking rates and, and, and integrating multiple classes of animals, you know, really aren't um, logistically feasible within their types of operations. And so, they're trying to think of, you know, think about and develop, you know, livelihood strategies that will help them um, in sustaining and building their operations. And so these include things like, you know, targeted ecological restoration grazing or integrated crop livestock production or even, you know, diversifying their household income sources to kind of support this livelihood that they want to um, that they want to pursue. And so some folks, actually quite a few, are actually working as livestock managers for other ranches. And, you know, they really see themselves as, you know, stewards of the land who are using grazing animals to restore watersheds and habitats and, and creating these more resilient communities. That's not to say that multi-generational operators don't see themselves that way. They, they, they do as well. It's just it was really strong here in these interviews. That is just getting at how these different communities of ranchers, whether they're first generation, whether you know they're multi-generation, how are they sharing and exchanging knowledge and tools? And um, I'm really curious, because Dan, you started a Facebook group during the drought called the Farmer Rancher Drought Forum in 2014. And there are over 800 members in this group, and it's a closed group, because I, I was curious <laughs> about maybe joining and then creeping on there for a little bit to see see what I could see, but you have to be a rancher to be in the group. And I was just really curious if you could tell us a little bit about how this Facebook group has provided support for the community. Have there been challenges with moderating such a large group? And then what are these interactions like between all of these different ranchers who are coming into it from different places and, you know, whether they're generational or just get it, getting started? 
That's a great a great question, and and actually, I will add you, so you should apply to, to be in the group. <laughs> um, we we started it <laughs> we started it as a, a place for um, producers and ag professionals to come together and share information, and um, in some cases, just commiserate. I think early on um, in 2014, that was that was a big part of it. Um, but we wanted it to also be a safe place where people could ask difficult questions or share difficult decisions that they were dealing with. What was appropriate to ask? What were the types of things that, that people wanted to discuss? And we discovered that it was easy for politics to get in the way of the real world. Early on, we kind of limited the political um, conversation that happened in that group, which I think was good and, and really haven't had to limit it since. I think from that, there's been some other um, perhaps more grounded communities develop in some places. So here in the foothills, we've got a, uh, an informal group that we um, refer to as our grazing geeks group. <laughs> and it's a, a group of people who are all in ranching in one form or another who get together on a regular basis just to talk about um, largely about drought strategies and out of that group has come some opportunities for for people to build networks where they've collaborated on um, you know for example we were short of feed last fall and and one of the members of that group had contracted to graze alfalfa stubble in the valley and so they took our all of our sheep for six weeks at a time when we didn't have much forage here in the foothills. And if you have the three last minutes of, of this conversation, <laughs> what would your guests want? Uh, what would your guests want the public to know about their work? What are the ways that public can support them? What kinds of infos should extension folks who are not the experts should be sharing in social platforms? Sure. I, I, I'll start and then Dan can, can wrap up <laughs> with everything I missed. <laughs> I think, um, you know, so thinking about, you know, what do we want the public to know? So, you know, rangelands, they really are these multiple use landscapes and they do hold immense social, ecological and economic values. And, you know, like we said, um, and, and actually, you know, some, some of the work that Faith has done, we know that, you know, climate and related resource impacts will increasingly challenge these operations and these landscapes, because we know that, you know, the, um, you know, as rising temperatures, greater precipitation variability and more frequent and intense droughts, you know, those trends are, are expected to continue. And so if we're thinking about how we can advance agricultural adaptation, you know, this is going to require a number of things, you know, thinking about, you know, collaborating with these folks who are, you know, working on the ground, who are, you know, basically living these experiences in, in, in science management partnerships. And then also thinking about, you know, local, state, national policy and program support, you know, that will support these proactive management solutions that come from management and science partnerships. And it's a lot of what, a lot of work that, um, that I do is focused on that. And so, you know, supporting these programs and these organizations and even policies that provide resources and provide technical assistance for sustaining these working lands, I think is really important. Um, obviously, my bias is supporting you know, organizations like Cooperative Extension. Um, you know, there's a local Cooperative Extension office in um, you know just about every county in California, and so there, you know, a lot of counties are doing a lot of great things on the ground. Dan is a great example of all of that that he's doing for his region, and so, and I think you know, 
for folks on you know social media platforms that are thinking about these landscapes i think you know just continue to educate yourself and really think critically about the things that are that are put out there and you know consider the source and consider really the the whole picture um you know the cost the benefits the trade-offs and the, the win-win type scenarios what you know what what is kind of the the net benefit of whatever uh, uh, scenario we want for these landscapes and i don't i don't have a whole lot to add to that i think that that covers um much of my perspective as well i think i think what i would add is that adaptation at the ground level requires flexibility and creativity and to the extent that we can through extension and through um, applied research help folks find that flexibility um, that we will facilitate that adaptation i also think and, and obviously i'm biased as a as an extension person as well um, but there's so much of this in rangelands in particular that nobody else can or will do and i think it's really important to maintain that county level um, work that's focused on questions that that our communities have relative to rangelands and rangeland agriculture um, in that regard i think it's different perhaps than than other types of agriculture um, in that that if it doesn't happen at extension it's not going to happen on rangeland and um, I think I think that's we're lucky to have that system um, so well embedded embedded here in California with connections to campus and and connections to local folks. Uh, once I have a travel travel around the state with Leslie, or at least a couple of two three field trips, and it has been very enlightening how to understand the rangeland cattle operations and i and i do think that sustainable landscape sustainable agriculture include animals thanks for listening and join us next time on water talk